Game Cool Books, episode 65, Unbear-like Deeds. We'll cover chapters 14 and 15 today. Chapter 14, Know What It Is, opens with a epigraph from John Ruskin. Labor without joy is base. Labor without sorrow is base. Sorrow without labor is base. Joy without labor is base. This is an outlier, I think, for Pullman, who usually takes his passages from poetry. Um, And I'm not well-read in Ruskin any more than I am in Spencer, uh, whose uh, fairy queen gave us one of our epigraphs last time. John Ruskin is a cantankerous, romantic art critic. um, And uh, if you look up this epigraph, it comes from a place that um, is actually an introduction to a pantomime play of Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves. It's in the course of an epistolary meditation on the nature of work and art, clearly, uh, topics close to Pullman's heart. And it comes in something called Time and Tide by Ware and Tyne, 25 letters to a working man of Sunderland on the laws of work by John Ruskin. Um, so I have no idea where Pullman came across this, but I do know that he has spoken very highly of the uh, marionette theater piece by von Kleist. And this is uh, in some ways very similar to that. He's also very much enamored of the Arabian Nights. And this is, of course, a description of Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves. Along with the Grimm tales, uh, fairy tales of the Brothers Grimm, he calls the Arabian Nights one of the most important and influential folk tales ever published uh, in his introduction to his retelling of some favorite Grimm tales. And in these chapters, 14 and 15, uh, getting towards the heart of the Amber Spyglass, we see a kind of pantomime um, of the process of creative art, and it is in the form of not a making, but a a remaking uh, of of the subtle knife. This preliminary chapter will set up the next, and it shows how knowledge and creativity interact. Now, the chapter opens where the previous one left off, Will and Lyra waking with the same thought, that is, uh, can they trust the spies? And it turns out that yes, as Will argued, the spies might not be entirely safe, but they are honest. They're trustworthy. The spy close by tells them uh, of the fallout from their battle the night before, uh, how Mrs. Coulter has been captured by Lord Asriel's forces, that Agunwe is heading back to the adamant tower with her. And uh, Will is curious, how did he find this information? It turns out that they did not go back through the window but have been talking via the lodestone resonator, which, of course, has not been explained yet to Will and Lyra. Now, the reader might wonder why no one came through the window after them, uh, why there was this very abrupt conclusion to the battle, and uh, why they immediately headed back to headquarters instead of pursuing Will and Lyra, who, from everything we've been told, were the whole point of the battle. But there you go. No one came through after them for whatever reason. Um, the plan now is to go and see their friend Yorick Birneson, the armored bear, and then the spies 
assume that they'll go back with them to Lord Asriel, and Will and Lyra do not disabuse them of that notion yet. They then, uh, as uh, Tialis says, are allies. And so Will suggests that they eat together as before he did with the angels, wondering if the Galavespians eat their food, and they, uh, they do. They will need to go back to the other world, though, that is Lyra's world, to find water, and Lyra suggests they do so as soon as possible. However, first she checks the alethiometer to make sure there is no danger, and it confirms that the soldiers are all gone, the villagers are in their homes, and if there were ever any zombie soldiers helping Mrs. Coulter out, they still do not make an appearance here. Not even mentioned. They come to the window then, uh, which, as before, when Mary Malone found hers in the world of Chitigatsi, uh, is described as a square that hangs in the air like a painting. And I think that's what Will's father said in his letters, too. Uh, they try to pinch the edges, uh, but it turns out, of course, that only Will can actually do this. And this is despite the fact that uh, Lyra, of course, and as we'll see, Tialis also knows something of that process of reading the alethiometer, of playing the lodestone resonator, of using the subtle knife. They're all different forms of the same knowledge, but they need their accompanying skill, uh, apparently, which, of course, are very, very different. Um, there is an important kind of ignorance that's raised here, too. Along with the concept of knowledge and its limitations, we get the question from Tialis, how many worlds can be reached with the knife? Will answers, as many as there are. No one would ever have time to find out. Um, this is an important concept for Pullman, of course, that the knife not only can go to any world, but... Uh, in the course of our story, anyway, only goes to places that we need to worry about. Um, the story has to leave out many, many things in order to be the story that it is and not a sprawling uh, world creation um, uh, that uh, Pullman critiques harshly in fantasists who follow Tolkien. Uh, of course, he does his own world building here, but it is within very much within the context of his story. Um, certainly not a theory of everything. Um, and we get our last glimpse of this world, uh, this particular landscape within it, that is, which opened the story, the sowing of the wind in the trees, and this time the dragonflies darting around like needles through that sunlight that dapples the uh, mountainsides. But the image, for all its beauty, is marred this time by the shock of seeing the wreckage from the battle, the charred zeppelin, the bodies as if prepared to fight on. Um, we might think of Lee and Dr. Grumman as they crash-landed in the trees in Chittagatsi. We might think, indeed, of... Pullman's own father, uh, who was lost, uh, who was a pilot, and of the dead body that he sees in his autobiographical sketch, um, that uh, from a motorcycle accident, apparently, and not a plane crash. But also, there's a very striking plane crash scene in his early novel, Galatea, uh, wherein 
the uh, one of the dead uh, men who crashes does come back to life indeed. Now, uh, we can imagine the horror of this image sticking with Pullman for uh, this scene as well in the Ember Spyglass, but uh, it's really only the children who are shocked by this because the spies have been in battle before. They look around coolly appraising who has lost more. Now, we come to the water. Uh, they drink deeply here. This is a beat in the story of uh, pause and refreshment. And we do get a brief uh, mention of Ama, although she's not named girl. Uh, wondering if she's all right, hoping that she is. And indeed, Lyra confirms that she is because she asked the alethiometer last night. So in my previous episode, I uh, overstated my case a bit uh, about Pullman's lack of concern for this Ama character. But as I say, she does not get mentioned by name here, only uh, in passing, and is dismissed with the uh, tongue-in-cheek comment of Lyra that the alethiometer must have told her that uh, she thinks that they are devils, and she probably wishes that she'd never gotten mixed up in with, with them. So that's the sort of character that Ama turns out to be. And this wouldn't be the most interesting part of the story for her to join. Anyhow, as all the walking, walking to the ridge where Yorick had gone, uh, this is a torment for Lyra after her long sleep, uh, but she would rather have her tongue torn out than confess it out loud. Um, she whimpers only when Will is off relieving himself, an interesting detail to even mention in uh, work like this, again, placing it more in the realm of realism than fantasy. Um, and so Machia tries to soothe her, saying it's no disgrace, uh, that it wouldn't let Will down far from it. Um, but uh, Lyra claims that she knows nothing of either of them, and Samakia retorts that she knows impertinence when she hears it. Now rest. And this, again, is a play on this theme of knowing knowledge, uh, which uh, is running through this chapter. Now, Lyra feels mutinous, but where she might earlier have lashed out, uh, now she instead becomes curious about what the Chevalier is up to on his instrument. It uh, is described as a dull stone like a pencil. Uh, which is an interesting image to use. Uh, of course, the writer is holding a pen or pencil. In Pullman's, pace, in Pullman's case, most likely his lucky pen, of course. Um, but also is compared to a violinist. And I believe that at least one of Pullman's sons went on to become a, um, a classical musician. So that violinist image here, uh, paired with the uh, the pencil uh makes a, an interesting biographical uh, connection. She can tell that what the Chevalier is up to is something as skillful and demanding as her own reading of the alethiometer. So there's that connection made for us between the lodestone resonator and the alethiometer. Presumably, it too requires that state of mind described by the poet Keats as negative capability, not irritably reaching after certainty but abiding in doubt. So an interesting form of knowledge. Um, 
he uh, has also got a set of headphones that he uses to listen to the message that comes back uh, on the wire that he winds around the pegs and manipulates the tension within it to hear better. She asks how it works, and he first judges her uh, interest, which is uh, rather uh, strange, um, but apparently he decides she is genuinely interested, and uh, proceeds to explain that what scientists, or in her world experimental theologians, call quantum entanglement is behind the lodestone resonator. Describes this as two atoms having properties in common and um, becoming counterparts so that if they take a lodestone and split it into the one anywhere it is will reproduce exactly and in the same moment the sounds uh, played upon the other. Um, this is a process that uh, is theoretical uh, in most worlds, but apparently is practical in the world of the Galavespians. And we also saw this, uh, or a version of it, with the demons, where, uh, though separated, they know what each other is feeling, and of course with the angels as well, very strongly, Baruch and Balthamos being able to tell what one another is going through. Um, now the spies go apart to talk, and though Pantalaimon turns his owl ears after them, they are too quiet, and we might also wonder if perhaps they are speaking in a language native to their world, which, of course, Lyra wouldn't understand anyway. But anyhow, uh, they go on walking. Even Will eventually can tell that Lyra is nearly finished, and so uh, he takes a look at her blistered feet and rubs in some of his blood moss ointment to help uh, heal them. It's an interesting blend of uh, biblical imagery here, of the washing of the feet and the anointing with oil. So, the gyropter is on its way to bring them away as soon as they have seen their friend the bear, uh, Tialis says. That's what he's heard on the resonator. But of course, the gyropter will never arrive. So, again, they've flown a great distance uh, in a very short time. To, um, to make it impossible for them to come back and uh, capture Will and Lyra. Um, there is something uh, interesting going on with this point of plot, um, not unlike the kinds of movements of Mrs. Coulter that we've noticed before. Anyhow, there is a great moment of relief and joy as Yorick appears white against the snow so that Will can't see him, but Lyra can. And uh, he growls deeply, uh, a threatening noise to Will, but Lyra takes it to be pleasure. She says she'd never th thought that she'd see him again after that moment on the bridge of ice at Svalbard where they parted. And uh, she asks immediately after Lee Scoresby, after his kingdom, and if he is alone here. And that, that topic of aloneness is picked up in the very next description of Will noticing that the spies have vanished, this power of his to become uh, unnoticed apparently is one that they also possess. Anyway, Lyra rides upon Yorick proud and happy, 
It's that image of riding the bear that we noticed in the very first book. Um, but it's different this time because, of course, they aren't alone. Will is there too. He is preoccupied and overhears only parts of what they're saying, but does tune in a bit when he hears about her calling the death of Lee Scoresby too cruel, asking if it's really true that her dear friend is dead. And Yorick confirms because the witch told him, um, as Baruch and Bothamos told Will about it. And we might note, as the fox told the cliffgast in the Scavengers chapter. Of course, he cares about this because it's his father that that unknown man died to help escape. Um, Yorick uh, further confirms the story by mentioning that he saw his body, although he doesn't tell them that he ate it. Um, he can tell that Lee died bravely, fighting off a whole troop of Muscovites, and sure enough, Yorick will avenge his death. Uh, as Lyra weeps, um, will is left wondering who this man was uh, and whether, perhaps whether, his father was right to abandon him. They come to York's cave, yet another cave scene, this one dark against the snow. Will is still unable to see the spies anywhere, but he knows that what they say is overheard by them as it is indeed by us, the readers. We see Yorick kindling the fire first of all, uh, directing the sparks exactly where he wants and gets it burning strongly at once. He roasts them some goat, although he eats his raw, um, or something like goat, and he points out that he was wrong, but luckily so, to come to the mountains at all. His people can't live here, but, of course, it meant that he met Will and uh, encountered Lyra. So he wants to know what's their plan. The warm firelight flickers over him in this moment, that, that light of attention, of interest. Um, and Will tells him that the knife is broken, but immediately breaks off his request to tell the spies to come out and listen honestly if they're there. He spotted where they must be hiding, and indeed they emerge on a ledge high up, out of reach. Demands that they show more respect, and Lyra loves hearing Will say this. It, of course, picks up on their argument from the night before, when they were telling her to show more respect. Um, a... Uh, Discussion of truth and honor comes out here, but Lyra, again, is more interested in Will's personality as it plays into this discussion. She imagines his demon present as a tigress and shrinks back from the anger she imagines. Um, Will points out that their deception was necessary because the spies would not hesitate to use their venom, trick them, uh, or rather... Uh, uh, put them under, and then um, have them captured by the gyropters. So if they did trick the spies, it was necessary, and they'll just have to put up with it. Now Yorick uh, asks who these people are, and uh, Will gets one more dig in, that they are spies and the last people who should talk about dishonor. The narrator points out that Tialis knows that he's in the wrong, 
although that's not entirely clear to me, um, they have a moment of uh, courtesy between the chevalier and the lady and the king. He bows and apologizes. That light that seems to shine on him is similar to that described uh, shining on the angels, and uh, it is going to be modified shortly when we come to the world of the Mulefa and how they are able to see a kind of play of light um, in the dust. Then um, Salmachia's courtesy uh, is ironically picked up on by the narrator. If um, Yorick wonders how they could possibly harm him, he doesn't show it because he has his courtesy too. So this time he invites them down to share the food. Another connection between the bear and the boy. And Will goes on that the knife is broken, that he meant to ask more politely, but there it is. Can he mend it? The alethiometer says that he can, and he confirms this shortly after. He takes a look at the pieces of the knife, which are all there, uh, touches them with that great deftness of his massive claws, and answers the question, but no more. Yes, he can mend it. But Lyra knows that he is holding something back. She asks, will he mend it? And Yorick uh, explains that this is much too dangerous to meddle with, that any other weapon is a mere toy compared to it. The harm this knife can do is unlimited. This idea of, of no limit, of no uh, boundary to its power is raised a few times. And he points out that uh, they simply don't know what the knife does, that it has its own intentions. He explains that the intentions of a tool are what it does, or what it is made to do, its purpose. And um, this interestingly connects with something that C.S. Lewis, of all people, says about the tools of interpretation, the hermeneutical tools of uh, biblical interpretation, that when you read the Bible for aesthetic, uh, you know, literary uh, enjoyment, this is, uh, quote, cutting the wood against the grain, using the tool for a purpose it was not intended to serve. It, the text, demands incessantly to be taken on its own terms. That's in a a piece about the literary impact of the authorized version. And that's, of course, one thing, at least, that Lewis and Pullman do agree on, is the power and grandeur of the King James version of the Bible. Now, um, the examples Yorick gives are much more practical and uh, more in line with Pullman's own woodworking, craftsman-like interests. He talks about a hammer, a vice, a lever, and points out again there may be other uses that the knife has which they don't know about. And when it does what they intend, opening worlds or fighting off uh, bad guys, they also do what the knife intends. His uh, final point here is about whether they can see the sharpest edge of the knife. Of course, they cannot. Then how can they know what it does? Now, Will can't really argue with that, but he does uh, 
feel very strongly that they must still use the knife, even without full knowledge, because not using it would be uh, a form of guilt. It would make them guilty of inaction, of giving in. And Lyra explains more in terms of the wicked Bolvanger people, that there are others in other worlds, and that if they don't use the knife, those people might get a hold of it. Indeed, they already have in the form of the silver guillotine, although we haven't necessarily brought that out fully. Um, now that they know about the power of the knife, they can't simply not use it. That would be like handing it over and permitting their enemies to use it against them. So, she offers to ask the alethiometer more about what the knife is, and so they can think properly before deciding whether to uh, uh, fix it. Will does not mention his own reason, which is to get home to take care of his mother. He knows that the knife, in a way, is responsible for both his and his father's desertion of her, and if he doesn't return, he'll never forgive himself. This idea of intents, of course, recalls the epigraph from Blake earlier about the truth told with bad intent. And that uh, was, of course, referring to Mrs. Coulter and her taking care of Lyra and her arguments about why she's doing that when she meets Will. So we should have those in the back of our mind, of course, uh, a parallel to Will's own mother. And we should probably also be thinking about the power of the knife to kill the authority, uh, which has been mentioned several times. Um, this is at least one thing that the reader now knows about the knife, which Will and Lyra perhaps do not. There's this beat of rest here as Yorick goes and looks at the stars, uh, some the same he knows from the north, some strange. He agrees to do this uh, reforging of the knife on one condition, though he thinks it is a mistake. Um, he couches this in terms of gods, that he and the bears have no gods, no ghosts, no demons, but they do have language. They make war. They use tools. And so he determines that full knowledge is better than half knowledge. Again, unclear whether Pullman would agree with that, or in what sense he agrees with that. But this is where Pullman takes his title for the chapter. He says, know what it is you're asking. So, Lyra does consult the alethiometer for longer than usual. She's never known it so confused. It says something about balance. The knife can be harmful, or it can do good. And it's a slight uh, balance between them. The thought or wish of will, in particular, could send it either way. And the alethiometer doesn't say what a good wish or thought would be. But it does say that they should do it. They should fix the knife. And then before she says more, she offers to go and get more fuel for the fire. This is a way for them to get apart from the spies to talk amongst themselves. Sure enough, there is a specific bush down the track has a resinous wood that will burn hot. So Will and Lyra go down. 
their scumbled footprints under the moon, a, a very painterly word there, scumbled. Um, and it uh, points up the sparing use of color throughout the chapter, but the highlights uh, when colors do appear and, and the importance of textures. Now, this is a very tactile moment, and this is felt as a brisk, hopeful, alive sense uh, among the children. She, Elira, tells Will that there were some other things that she didn't fully understand. Right, So we don't really have full knowledge, but we're in that intriguing half-light, again, of negative capability. It spoke of the knife being the death of dust, but also the only way to keep dust alive. It's incredibly dangerous. It kept saying that. It kept repeating it. So Yorick, of course, is also right about this. But Lyra is thinking in terms of the power of the knife to take them to the world of the dead. It said that if they do that, they might not survive. They might not get out again. And in some sense, of course, they are not whole when they emerge. But uh, they are silenced by this thought as before when they saw the dead bodies. Now, they are sure that this is what they must do, or at least Will still is sure, that they need to go and speak to Roger, and Will says he wants to speak to his father there too. Lyra admits that she's afraid, and he knows that she would never say this to anyone else, though of course she will say it to Yorick shortly here, um, but in some sense uh, Will and Yorick are the same now to her people she loves most. And she says that if they didn't use the knife properly or fix it, or if they fail, there's just emptiness, there's blankness, the alethiometer says, which is interesting that it has a way of saying nothing at all. So they're determined to still try. She knows this won't be like her other adventures, rescuing the kids from Bullfanger, because then she didn't know what she was doing. She was lucky. She had help from the witches and the Egyptians, and there won't be help this time. And though she doesn't say it, she, in some sense, does know more of what is going on and what she's up to. Now, that knowledge is something that she saw in a dream, and so she doesn't fully understand what this is going to mean, going to the world of the dead, of course. But she does know it's worse than Bolvanger, uh, from what she saw, and she is afraid. Will confesses that he's afraid, too, of getting stuck somewhere and never seeing his mother again. A memory comes to him, almost dreamlike, of sitting in the dark, uh, telling stories, uh, the voice of his mother singing him songs there uh, when he was sick. And as long as he heard that voice, he felt safe, so he can't abandon her. And as if she knows what he is thinking, Lyra seems to know him well enough to guess. She says that she is also thinking of her mother, Mrs. Coulter, how she can't remember uh, any time when she was little of anyone holding and cuddling her. but. Uh, she does uh, rule out Mrs. Lonsdale ever doing that, for sure. Although, there's a fun irony there when we come to La Belle Sauvage. And uh, she mentions that Mrs. Lonsdale only cared about her staying clean and, and about manners, of course. 
But in the cave where Mrs. Coulter had been keeping her, she felt that she was loving and looking after her. Lyra thinks that she must have had some disease and her mother was afraid of her dying. And so whenever she did wake up, she saw her holding her in her arms. Lyra says that's what she would do if she had a child, if she was in Mrs. Coulter's place. Now Will has a choice here. He can tell her why she was really asleep, but he decides that he really shouldn't uh, disabuse her of this uh, illusion. This is a very important form of knowledge after all, this belief in loving and being loved, uh, things that we can't even remember, things that are prior to any conscious memories, but that are still so important. And so he decides not to tell her. They come to that burning bush. They carry armfuls of it back up the path, a, a, an image of the burden of knowledge, of course, that also happens to set up the next chapter's action. And that brings us to chapter 15, The Forge. The epigraph here comes again from William Blake. It's the first of his memorable fancies from the marriage of heaven and hell. In context, it goes, As I was walking among the fires of hell, delighted with the enjoyments of genius, which to angels look like torment and insanity, I collected some of their proverbs, thinking that as the sayings used in a nation market's character, so the proverbs of hell show the nature of infernal wisdom better than any description of buildings or garments. When I came home on the abyss of the five senses, where a flat-sided steep frowns over the present world, I saw a mighty devil folded in black clouds hovering on the sides of the rock, with corroding fires he wrote the following sentence, now perceived by the minds of men and read by them on earth. How do you know but every airy way is an immense world of delight closed by your senses five? So Pullman takes only the first part of the first sentence there, um, but is clearly pointing us towards this Blakean image of the corroding fire of language. Um, and that closing uh, proverb that talks about the uh, limitations of human knowledge um, and their sort of moral consequences. Now, Lewis attempts a spirited rebuttal in his great divorce, um, but I, I, I fancy that Pullman has the stronger read of William Blake. Uh, Albeit, of course, his interpretation comes in the form of a long fantasy story. The uh, comparison between the two, of course, is endlessly interesting. We start this chapter with the Galavespians again. They're talking about the knife as well, and about Will and Lyra. There's a suspicious peace between them and the bear now, uh, and they whisper to one another how they must never leave uh, the two of them uh, on their own, they must stay closer than a shadow. And when we come to the world of the dead, we'll hear something very similar. Uh, they argue that, um, uh, this is Samakia saying that the girl is more trusting, more innocent. She loves easily. But uh, Tialis points out that Will, 
uh, can't go anywhere without her, just as sure as she uh, can't go anywhere without the knife. So, the upshot is simply that they stay close to them at all costs, particularly to the boy. Now, of course, uh, they would uh, be skeptical of York's power to forge the knife in the first place, given the mighty forges and uh, accoutrements uh, at Lord Asriel's adamant tower. But with simply his piece of armor as an anvil and the fire and the stones, um, he is going to do this. There is a kind of certainty about him that we're told muffles the spy's scorn. He directs the placing of the branches, puts all the energy of the fire to one side, and builds up an intense heat there, requiring two more trips to bring up enough wood for the entire project. The preparation continues. They're going to have stones that release a special gas to keep the air away from the knife from weakening it. With owl-eyed pan, Lyra picks out these stones, and this owl image recurring here seems like a reference to Athena. Specifically in the context here, I think of her competition with Arachne, because there's a lot of weaving imagery that goes with this. Lyra gets a dozen or so stones and sets a draft across the fire uh, with a leafy branch. Now, Will is put in charge of the fire and has to understand the principles of placing the wood because Yorick won't have time to direct every single piece. Now, this is another instance of that principle of knowing what it is you're doing um, in order to do it well and to uh, be safe from the consequences of doing it wrong, I suppose. In this case, the knife... Uh, we know the consequence of reforging it will be that it won't look the same because it will be a bit shorter, the pieces will overlap, some play of color will be lost, but it will work. It will be just as sharp. Now, York finally shapes the stone that he'll use as the hammer. He's in some way creating the very tools, the dark materials for the work that he is about. And uh, this is very bear-like, in fact, the act of self-creation. They make their own armor, their soul. And Pan, as a crow now, flaps his wings to help blow the billows of the fire. Um, York places the blade there. Uh, the, the glow, the glare, makes his face lurid. And the colors on the knife in the fire go from red to yellow to white to a kind of shiny, glistening, firework-like sparks. And at this point, we're probably thinking of not just a forge, but an alchemical process. Um, this is a point that is much stronger in uh, later parts of the secret commonwealth, for instance. But Yorick pulls out knife, places it on his own armor, and strikes that hammer blow with his stone. Um, Will feels his whole life depends on that tiny triangle of metal. Another geometrical, kind of alchemical moment here. He senses the atoms in the lattice of the metal 
in his very being, we're told. And the kind of preciosity that the writing takes on at certain points throughout this chapter is a way, I think, of Pullman trying to match the bear's virtuosity of craftsmanship. We might think also of the cave where the witches tried out their spell. Um, of course, that one didn't work any more than Mrs. Coulter's attempt to keep Lyra asleep in her cave. But this, this craftsmanship of Yorick will work. Will understands this at once, that these are the finest tools, the only person who can reforge the knife. And he is going to have to participate in this process. York uh, cries to him to hold it still in his mind, to forge it, that this is his task too. Will feels himself quiver under the blows, but the uh, gas from the stones keeps out that iron-eating air, and he feels the atoms linking each to each, and the join coming good holding the edge in line with his mind. Snags and easements, these snags normally are referring to the possible worlds he can open, but in this case, to the forging of the knife itself. Again, making the tool before the actual work can begin. Um, this f moves quite quickly. Uh, Lyra puts a new stone in place and... Each time a new piece of the knife comes in, there's a new layer of complexity. That layer uh, idea makes us think perhaps of the alethiometer and the reading of the different uh, meanings. The um, effort is physical. Lyra is aching. Pan is beating his wings. Of course, uh, also intellectual. Um, on Will's part, primarily intellectual. And he is uh, nearly exhausted by the end for the final piece to affix the blade to the handle. There is a pause in which Yorick looks into his eyes and he sees in Yorick's eyes nothing, a, a black brilliance. He understands without words that this is work, hard work, but they are equal to it. And I think we are supposed to hear in this, the determination of the author, again, as well, that he, too, is reaching a point of exhaustion of his abilities and his strength, but that he must be equal to it. Because, of course, if this last piece, this last connection, this last book in the series doesn't work, the entire thing will fall flat. Now, arguably, other parts of the series can stand on their own, and many readers feel that the first book, Northern Lights or The Golden Compass, uh, is in itself a, a great work, whether they particularly like where the series goes or not. But anyhow, this is Pullman uh, speaking, I think, again, of his own project as well as the forging of the knife here. And at last, with a final tiny settling of atoms connecting together, uh, which Will can presumably only imagine, but... Uh, we're told, actually feels it, he is complete, he is finished, and the knife is whole. Even Yorick's fur is singed, um, but um, the uh, spies have taken turns sleeping during this process, so it must have been very long indeed. Um, 
And as the knife cools to silver and will reaches for the handle, uh, Samakia wakes Tialis, but he doesn't touch it. The heat is still too great, and there is still one more part of this process. Yorick calls Will outside and bids Lyra not touch the knife, but not let the fire burn down either. The intense cold, again thinking of Blake in hell, um, is the setting for their conversation now. This reference to hell um, and the prohibitions of not touching the knife or the prohibition York is about to give Will actually make the bear resemble not just a mythic god figure of Athena or Hephaestus the smith, but also Hades himself, the lord of the underworld, whom Orpheus charmed with his song, but who, of course, kept Eurydice when Orpheus looked back. So that break moment uh, is probably, uh, again, being connected with that mythic attempt to overcome death. Um, Yorick is still very much in doubt about whether this is the right thing to do. It's still not too late for him to turn back from finishing the knife, it seems. And he points out again that the knife should never have been made in the first place. He should not mend it now that it's broken because he is troubled. He is full of doubt where before he was always certain. Um, and doubt is a human thing. If he is becoming human, then things are very bad and he is perhaps making them even worse. Now, Will interposes that perhaps when the first bear made the very first piece of armor, it was bad in the same way. And Yorick, after rolling in the snow to clean off the singes in his fur, um, confirms that yes, maybe it was. I think when he's called the personification of all the snow in the world, we might think back to the snowman poem by Wallace Stevens. It has this very interesting couple of lines here. One must have a mind of winter. And then the closing line, the nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. Um, kind of an interesting critique of the romantic sensibility that Pullman usually seems to operate within. But anyhow, yes, perhaps what he is doing is bad in the very same way, but that was different because there was no custom before the first bear whereas now Yorick should operate within bear customs. Bear nature is weak, he says, like flesh without armor. And he thinks he has stepped outside bear nature by betraying their customs in this way. He is as foolish as Yofor Rachnison. Of course, he ate part of Yofor Rachnison. He contains Yofor within himself, uh, physically, in this moment here. But he wants to know why the knife broke before he finishes fixing it. And Will, his understanding of this moment was that Mrs. Coulter looked at him and he thought she had the face of his mother. In that moment, he couldn't cut a way out because he was pushing and pulling in his mind at the same time and the tension snapped the knife. 
He says, actually, that it meant something it couldn't cut. What he means, I think, is his love of his mother. And this idea will, of course, come back later. Now, he believes that the woman knew what she was doing, for she's very clever. But, of course, as she points out, it's him, Will, who breaks the knife. He still can't admit that here. Yorick notices that when he talks of the knife, he talks of his mother and father. This is something else that Will hadn't consciously realized. And the bear asks him what he's going to do now. When Will says he doesn't know, he gets cuffed uh, with a heavy blow that knocks him tumbling down the slope a ways. Will is tempted to some bravado here, but uh, he doesn't uh, end up saying the foolish thing that he thinks that Yorick would never have done that if he had the knife. And this, again, is some of that preciosity of the writing coming through. But anyway, he doesn't know in the sense that he knows what it is they're going to do, but not what it means. Again, this limitation of knowledge comes out here. It's something that frightens him and Lyra, that they're going to go to the world of the dead to talk to the ghosts of Roger and Will's father. In that way, he is pulled apart, again, because he also wants to go and talk to his mother, reassure her, take care of her. And finally, perhaps he should go, as the angel told him, to Lord Asriel and use the knife on his side in this battle. Yorick dismisses what the angel told him because he fled, but Will points out that he wasn't a warrior, that he is afraid, too, that sometimes one does the wrong thing because it looks like it's the dangerous thing and one doesn't want to be called a coward. So an implicit critique here, perhaps, of Yorick himself. Um, though uh, that uh, is his explanation for why he didn't answer Yorick's question. Yorick reveals that he too is conflicted. Uh, he's compromised himself. He may have brought destruction to his people. He may have held it off a little longer, but at any rate, these unbear-like deeds, that is, traveling to the mountains in the first place, or, of course, finding Lyra, caring about her, forging the knife, um, they fill him with doubt like a human. But, of course, that very doubt is, is incredibly important and necessary for the creative process, as Pullman understands it. The humanization of his readers and of his characters uh, is very much a big part of Pullman's project, I think. So, Yorick here tells Will openly, so he does not under misunderstand the thing that he already knows deep down, that he must no longer think about his mother. If his mind is divided, the knife will break. And that is, I think, um, Pullman also talking to himself. Um, not specifically maybe about his mother or father, um, but about his concerns, his many multifaceted uh, attempts that he is making in this book, that he must focus on getting the story clear uh, and not be led astray by theology, by politics, by any other concerns he might have. So at this point, the bear um, bids 
uh, Will to keep the spies company while he says his farewell to Lyra. Will has no words other than to say thank you. And we come then to the last part of the chapter. The last step in the forging of the knife is to take uh, to take it while it's still hot, Will, to plunge it into the snow. Again, this idea of Yorick being personifying the snow, the snow as nothingness, um, is in some sense uh, an integral part of the forging of such a knife. Um, the rosewood handle is scorched, the atoms settle, and it remains infinitely rare, the, the keenness, the sharpness of the blade. It's shorter and less elegant. Its dull surface um, shows where it had joined together. It's ugly. It is honest, though. It is what it is, wounded like Will himself. And then Lyra goes outside to be cuddled, cradled by Yorick, her hands nuzzled and licked clean. She feels his voice uh, as she leans against him and explains their plan that came to her in a dream. Roger calling to her. She feels it was her fault, though she knows it might not have been. She knows that she must go and say sorry and rescue him and the other ghosts if she can. Though can is not the same as must, and their business is with the living. Uh, as Yorick says, Lyra believes that she must keep her promises. And I think part of what proves that this is the right thing to do is that she is scared, that she wishes she hadn't dreamt it and hadn't thought, that Will hadn't thought of the idea to use the knife to go there. And Pan's trembling is uh, very much like when they were outside of the uh, fish house uh, that first time that she rode the bear. But that was the right thing to do then, and she believes it's the right thing now. But as she points out, they won't know for sure until they try. As for Yorick, he's going to go back north. Even the snow is different here. Again, that snow image um, complicated uh, in this in this little way. They, they're better off in the sea, even if it is warm. And uh, Yorick seems to concede that sometimes doing the wrong thing is worth it because of the learning that comes about. Um, he thinks that his people will be needed. He feels and smells war in the air. He spoke to Serafina about, he, uh, about how she was going to get Lord Fa and the Egyptians' help um, against the enemy. And there's a kind of finality here again, that if Lyra and Will don't find their way out again, if Yorick does not survive the war, they will not meet again because he and his people again leave behind no ghost. Their body becomes part of the earth. But if both of them survive, then she is a welcome visitor to Svalbard. He goes on to confess how Will outfaced him at their meeting at the river, a point of the story that Will himself has not mentioned to Lyra. He calls Will a half-grown boy who was too daring, too clever for him, something he thought could not be possible. 
And so, though he's not happy about it, there's no one else he would trust to go with Lyra, except Will, that they are worthy of each other. And like Will, she is unable to speak when he calls her his dear friend and says goodbye at this point. So they come together, Will and Lyra, after their separate conversations with Yorick, the great craftsman, who has made possible the rest of their journey at this uh, turning point in the story. Uh, Pan takes the form of a wolf. Um, he had licked Will's wounds before. Uh, now he is silent um, as Lyra weeps, making no noise. There's this moment of extremely uh, intricate writing and imagery of the reflections in the snow, of her tears um, meeting Will's eyes. The photons wove the two children together, the narrator tells us. Um, and in that light, again, we will see an image of dust in the next few chapters. But Lyra is um, trying to explain what's making her so sad is that Yorick is old and sad, that all of the responsibility, it's all coming on to us. They ain't old enough. They're too young. This consciousness of hers, of growing up, is expressed here in a negative form. With Lee dead, with Yorick growing old, it's up to them what's got to be done. Now Will, of course, is determined. He's not going to look back. He knows they can do it, but they need to sleep now. So we're coming to the end of the chapter. Um, the gyropters are on their way, although they never do appear. So they must cut through to a world where they'll be safe. If the spies come with them, that's too bad. They'll get rid of them another time, he says, showing how little they know of the spies. And he says he knows that the knife will work, though he hasn't tested it yet. With Pan a tiger now, as she had imagined Will's demon before, they go back in, they get their things together. Will feels that he is whole again. He hadn't realized how much he loved the knife, of course, until it is lost and now recovered. But he says that they can't wait. Um, Lyra points out that it wasn't Will who lied to the spies. Will doesn't lie. Um, the uh, lady says that they are making a mistake, but of course they have thought hard about what they're doing. This is what they must do. And the spies can either go with them or go back to Lord Asriel. Um, of all the worlds, it's the one that he had slept in safely when he escaped from Metatron, that world of the sand dunes with its endless warm beach. Um, and so as they fall asleep, the closing image is Tialis playing a message on the lodestone resonator into the darkness. And uh, that is where we'll leave it off for now. Uh, the next episode, again, I hope will be a little bit uh, shorter for you. But thanks again for listening and take care.